my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I need the world to know what happened and how it happened. Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, Episode 12, Nothing Left to Booze, Bruce Rowland. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. He never wrote 
the state to turn him back. And I think that's really important when you when you look at the letters he was writing the state's attorney and, and, and how desperate he was for them to help him. Had I have really ran into him, which I didn't, had I really ran into him and, and confessed this, this crime to him, he would have absolutely, you know, recontacted the state's attorney and, and, and been like, you know, hey, you know, I've got some new information, you know. So it, it, it didn't happen. The evidence that, that they withheld from us, I, I think, uh, demonstrates you know, really, really well why they withheld it. Because I, I've said this before, and, I, and I'll, I'll always say, you know, credibility, witness credibility is what this case was based on. The jury had to make a determination based on the credibility of witnesses. And the evidence that was withheld went directly to his credibility. One last thing I want to point out about Bruce is that in the letter, in the letters that he was writing to the state attorney, he was suggesting that they, maybe you can take one of my sentences and, and run it concurrent rather than consecutive. And if you fast forward to 2001, he'd gotten out and was right back in jail, was in trouble again, you know, getting more PUIs and more felony driving on revokes. And he was facing better than 10 years. He was facing extended terms on everything. And he got less time for his third and fourth DUIs than he did for a second. They sentenced him properly in the beginning, in November of 2001. They gave him consecutive sentences. Because the Illinois statute says that, you know, when you're out on bond for one felony and you catch another one, when you're convicted, you have to serve those sentences consecutively. And they ran them consecutively, but then just one day out of the clear blue, some judge uh, entered a amended sentence and took one of his sentences and ran it, ran it uh, concurrently, just like he'd asked years earlier. So that's what was going on, and this is this is what keeping me uh, from getting uh, any forensic testing done. So you know, Bruce is. Uh, you know, he's, he's, we, we've contacted him, we've reached out to him and asked him if he would uh, like to come on here and clarify anything, clear anything up, defend what he did, uh, and he's just another one that uh, is, is choosing not to, so. That's, uh, that's just another one of uh, McLean County's finest witnesses in this case. In December of 1999, Detective Katz was contacted by Bruce Rowland's attorney, Mac Arnold, and said that Rowland had been arrested for what would have been his fourth or fifth DUI charge, but he felt his client's information would be worth a free pass on those charges. Arnold asked Detective Katz to contact State's Attorney Charles Renard to see what kind of deal Renard would be willing to make. The next day, Bernard told Katz to tell Arnold that if his client was totally truthful and if his information was correct, that his office had a history of taking the person's cooperation into consideration at sentencing time. Within three days, a taped interview was conducted by Katz with Roland in reference to the Bill Little homicide. Roland told police he learned about the crime the next day through the media, and a couple of months later, he had a conversation with Susan Powell, and she had asked him to buy a leather coat, as it had been something to do with a murder. 
and that she ended up pawning the coat and stated that she had gotten the coat from Jamie Snow. Rowan stated that the next time he heard anything was in February of 1994, when he was in Lincoln Correctional Center. He stated he ran into a couple of guys from Bloomington, C-Note and Travis Gaddis, and that Travis Gaddis had told him that Jamie Snow was involved in the case. After being transferred to Logan in April of 1994, Rowan stated that he had a conversation with Jamie Snow while on assignment as a trustee. He went on to say that Jamie was in solitary confinement as he was on the circuit and was being transferred from prison to prison. Rowland stated that Snow told him they were out partying at Whitmer's house, which was three or four houses down from the gas station. Snow went on to say he went to the Clark gas station to buy a pack of cigarettes and that the attendant would not give them to him and that Snow didn't have enough money to buy them. That's when Snow tried to unsuccessfully take the cigarettes. According to Rowland, Snow went on to say that he and Stretch left, but went back to the station, grabbed the cigarettes, and the guy started an altercation, and Snow shot the guy, and took the money out of the register drawer, and got in the car and left, and that he thinks maybe Stretch was driving the car, but he isn't sure. And he shot the guy because the guy recognized him from earlier that evening, and they left Bloomington after that. Snow said he got at least one pack of cigarettes and some money and that it was a hell of a lot more than 40 or $60. Rowland said that's the only conversation he had with Snow, and Snow was transferred out shortly after that. Rowland testified in both Susan and Jamie's trials, much the same. However, he omitted the parts about the leather murder coat, as well as Travis Gaddis telling him that Jamie committed the crime. Rowland testified that he did not get any promises from the state in reference to his DUI charges, and that he was testifying because he was a good citizen. There was, however, an interesting exchange in Jamie's trial when Tina Griffin asked Roland if he knew Jamie and asked him to identify Jamie in court. Do you see Jamie Snow here in the courtroom today? No, I don't. You don't see him in the courtroom today? I don't see him over there. You don't see Jamie Snow here? Uh-huh. I am going to show you what is marked as People's Exhibit Number 53 and ask if you recognize him in this photograph. Yes. Who do you recognize that photograph to be? Jamie Snow. And showing you what is marked as People's Exhibit Number 56, ask if you recognize who is in that photograph. Jamie Snow. Okay. And I am going to show you what is marked as People's Exhibit Number 36 and ask if you recognize anybody in that? Yes. Who do you recognize that to be? Jamie Snow. Now are you indicating that you don't see anybody in the courtroom that looks like those photographs of Jamie Snow, how you knew him back when you knew him? That's correct. Jamie has always been emphatic that he didn't know Bruce. Bruce couldn't do an in-court ID, even after Tina Griffin showed him three pictures of him. He was also asked directly about the car and the money. And did he actually indicate to you after he shot William Little that he took the money out of the drawer? No, no. He said he did state that he took the money and cigarettes and took off. Okay, did he indicate how they had left? Not necessarily. He didn't say whether he peeled out of there or whatnot, but they left. Did they indicate that they got into a car? No. 
It's the little inconsistencies that are critical. Note, they did not have any proof of a car at the scene, and the cash drawer was missing, so they couldn't have him testifying that he took the money out of the drawer. Finally, Roland testified emphatically that he never contacted police about this case until his DUI charge in 1999. He testified as follows. When you got released from prison, did you go to the police station with this information and share it with them? No. Did you know why you didn't? I just didn't want to be involved with it. Did there come a time, in fact, you did go to the police and give them this information? Yes. Can you indicate how that came about? I was arrested for a DUI and discussed it over with my attorney. The information I knew, and he suggested that I should probably come forward. Did your attorney then make contact with the police for you? Yes. You met with them and shared the information? Right. Would that have been in December of 1999? Yes. Now, when you talked to the police the first time in December of 99, or any time since, did the police or state's attorney or anybody make any promises or guarantees about you receiving anything in in return for your statement? No. At Jamie's request, his attorney also called Brian Whitmer to the stand. You know, the guy whose house they were supposedly partying at. Brian basically testified that he knows of Jamie and that they did have an altercation in 1988, but that he has never hung out with him and Jamie has never been at his house. He also testified that he was locked up on March 31, 1991, so he couldn't have been having a party anyway. Brian's father... Carol Whitmer also testified that Brian was locked up that night and that there was no party at the house. Carol states that he didn't recognize Jamie from the pictures shown to him. The state then presented records stating that Carol visited his son in jail that day and tried to insinuate that Jamie could have been at his house that night while Brian was in jail during the hour that Carol visited Brian. So that is all the jury knew at the time of both trials. But as usual, There's a lot of stuff that has been discovered since the trial. Roland's attorney, Mac Arnold, and Detective Barkas, one of the lead detectives on this investigation, were neighbors. Their children played together, and they frequently spent evenings together. In fact, Barkas testified for Arnold when Arnold had a disciplinary hearing in 1994 for buying 10 ounces of marijuana for $2,400 from Associate Judge William Mark Dalton a judge who also presided over Arnold's cases in court. That's right, a judge who sold weed to attorneys who appeared in his court. At the time Barkas testified, he was a police officer in the Criminal Investigations Division and a Drug Enforcement Coordinator for the Bloomington Housing Authority. Barkas testified that he saw no conflict with his position in seeking advice from Arnold and that he would still let Arnold babysit his children. Arnold was found guilty, his law license was suspended for a year, and he was ordered to participate in a drug abuse support and testing program and monitored for three years. We learned through FOIA requests that Roland had indeed reached out to both the police and the state's attorney's office and had exchanged letters with the state's attorney's office in both May and April of 1994. In a letter dated April 5th, 1994, Roland writes, Dear Charles Renard, This letter is concerning information that I have leading to the indictment 
on the persons involved in the shooting death of William Little. I believe that I have enough to bring indictments out, but I am serving a three-year sentence for a DUI and driving on a revoked license. I understand that there is a reward of $5,000 from private donors, and Crime Stoppers is also offering a $2,500 reward leading to indictments. I would be happy to assist you with all information I have. If there's help for me getting something like a conditional discharge or early release from the IDOC, I think I should be transferred to McLean County to discuss this matter. It just does not seem safe to discuss everything here in Lincoln Correctional Center. I am willing to do what it takes to get this indictment. I hope we can help each other. Thank you. Bruce Rowland On April 12th, Assistant State's Attorney Tina Griffin notifies Crow of the letter. On April 18th, Griffin responds to Rowland. Dear Mr. Rowland, Our office received your letter suggesting that you had information which could be of assistance in a pending investigation in our county. I have contacted the primary investigator assigned to the case, Detective Charles Crow, and I have advised him of your letter. Detective Crow should be contacting you in the near future to discuss your information with you. Very truly yours, Tina Griffin, First Assistant State's Attorney. We know Crow contacted and met with Rowland because of the letter that follows dated May 6, 1994. But apparently, there was not much information. There is also not a police report referencing this meeting, which is very unusual for Crow, who was meticulous about keeping records for interviews. Dear Miss Griffin and Mr. Crow, I have now received four more years for the charges of theft over $300 and tampering with an ATM machine. The reason for the charges are strong and out of faith that I had in my lady friend. She showed me how to make the deposit and how to withdraw the cash. Her and my daughter receive all cash. Also, the checks I wrote were for the things she stated she needed while I was gone in prison. This was clearly a con, and I was a fool enough to believe her. She promised me that she would pay for all these transactions. I'm not sure why or what I was feeling, but the truth is, that I feel that she also should be charged for something. She helped with the deal with the ATM. I know my information was not much in the little case, and I surely wish that I could have helped more. I feel that my sentence was very harsh. This will cost me seven years of my life. I am in the process of filing a motion to reduce sentence to concurrent instead of consecutive. Can you please help me? I believe that maybe I could help you in the future. Thanks, Bruce Rowland. Recalling his testimony, Rowland repeatedly stated he never contacted the state until December of 1999. These letters were hidden from Jamie's defense team because they discredit the state's theory because Jamie was not in prison with Rowland at that time and Rowland is literally begging for help and stated he will do anything to get it. And as we'll later hear, he got the exact deal he asked for in his letters. As mentioned, we didn't know what happened at the meeting exactly, but according to movement records, Jamie was assigned a court writ for Logan on 11-21-94, and coincidentally, Rowan was assigned to the sanitation crew at Logan on 11-22-94. The two assignments set them up to be at least in the same vicinity with Rowan having free movement. 
Jamie stayed at Logan for exactly seven days, from 12794 to 121494. This is when he allegedly confessed the murder to Roland. Remember in Roland's initial police report when he mentions Travis Gaddis told him Snow did the crime? We discovered an interview from Travis Gaddis from 122298, in which he is also asking for a deal. He states that Jamie and Stretch confessed to him in August or September of 91, and states that Jamie shot the kid because he thought he recognized him. We think this is where Roland got his initial story, but Gaddis was left out because, well, the detectives agreed to a deal on the tape, so he couldn't very well be used as a witness. Uh, if we need to, uh, would you be willing to talk about this again at, at a later time? If certain things uh, were were done, yes. Right. Okay, and by certain things, uh, we're saying that we would talk to the state's attorney and see if you could possibly get some some time out of this, some time out of it, some some time reduced out of this, so completely reduced. I mean, it's is. I'm about to get off into my other uh, speculations here. Well, we don't need to get into the other speculations. But you haven't, at this point, you haven't been promised anything, correct? Other than the obstructing justice and uh, yeah, harassing Franklin. Well, uh, I, no, I don't want to be charged with nothing whatsoever. Right. Nothing. Right. Or I didn't, and I don't want my charged with anything and as long as they're not as long as you or him are not neither one of us are involved neither one of us are involved okay well, this concludes the, the taped interview we also discovered that bruce took and failed the polygraph in 1999 Although the polygraph was discovered, the results were omitted prior to trial. We only recently received these results. Also discovered was a police report from February 2000, in which Correctional Officer Kinney, Roland's work supervisor in 1994, was interviewed. Kinney stated he remembered Bruce from Logan Correctional Center. Katz explained to Kinney, that Bruce claimed to have a conversation with Kenny back in 1994 at Logan, that he had information about a murder case and wanted to know what to do with it. Kenny said if Bruce would have said anything about a murder, he would have reported it, that he didn't recall the conversation. Of course, that report was never disclosed before trial. It also turns out that in June of 2000, a couple of months before Susan's trial, another informant, Karen Strong was being wiretapped. The taped phone calls were between Strong and Bruce's then wife, Danielle Rowland. Danielle made it very clear in the calls that she was seeking new evidence in this case in order to help her husband. We have the overhear tapes from 6-9-2000 and 6-28-2000, but it appears there were others referenced in the report. We have yet to get those. Between Susan's trial and Jamie's trial, 
they let Roland out on bond and even let him leave the state. During that time, Roland got another DUI that was never mentioned at trial. Jamie was sentenced in May of 2001, and both Bruce and Danielle Roland had plea hearings on November 9, 2001. Danielle received two years probation and $40 restitution for possession of a controlled substance. The following charges were dismissed. Three counts of forgery, one count of obtaining a substance by fraud, and deceptive practices of writing a bad check. Because of prior DUIs, Bruce was eligible for an extended sentence. However, he received less time on the following charges than he did on his second DUI. 1999 DUI, revoked license, uninsured vehicle, squealing, screeching tires, headlight out. 2000, criminal felony, driving with revoked or suspended license. 2001, criminal felony, driving with revoked or suspended license. 2001, criminal felony. Aggravated DUI, driving with revoked license. 2001, deceptive practices, writing a bad check. Roland received five years total. Both Roland and Danielle got their deals. In 2012, Danielle Roland came forward and came clean, even submitting an affidavit. Danielle stated that Bruce gave false information at trial and that right after his conviction, he told her he had lied and they had numerous conversations about it. She stated that prior to him coming forward, Barkas and Katz harassed Bruce. Then he caught a DUI and called Katz. She stated she was with Bruce when he called Katz and Bruce wanted to talk to Katz about the Jamie Snow case. She said Katz and Barkas came to see them the next day, but Bruce did not want to talk to them without a lawyer and hid upstairs, and that Katz told Danielle he was eligible for an extended term. Danielle stated Katz was very flirtatious with her, and that he called her all of the time, even after the trial. Katz pressured her to make sure Bruce cooperated, telling her they could put Bruce away for 50 years. Further, Katz's wife was in charge of licensing home daycares, and Danielle had a home daycare. Katz made it clear that he had the power to do whatever he wanted through his wife. She stated Bruce caught another DUI between trials while he was out on bond, and that he had to serve time on that case. She stated her ex-husband was involved with Bill Little's sister, Susan Little, and that he, her ex, was recording phone calls without her knowing. She stated Karen Strong called her out of the blue, and told her that she was going to her ex-husband's and Susan's place and buying drugs, and that her kids had been there. She stated when she found out, she took the tapes to Tina Griffin and Renard to try to end visitation with her ex-husband, but instead, they got eavesdropping orders from Judge Bernardi, both Jamie and Susan's trial judge, and told her to find reasons to call her and grill her on the case. They wrote notes to tell her what to say. Danielle stated that after sentencing, she told Jamie's attorney that Bruce had lied, but nothing ever happened. Bruce called Tammy Alexander as well. After hearing a podcast about the letters he wrote to state from prison, Bruce admitted to Tammy 
that he doesn't remember seeing Jamie and Logan in 1994, and that they were not allowed to talk to inmates and could not have had a conversation. Bruce remembered receiving the response to his letter from Tina Griffin. He stated that Crow came to see him four days after he transferred to Logan in 1994, and that he told Crow that all he knew was hearsay, and two inmates in another prison told him that Jamie did it. Bruce stated that Crow or Katz wrote out a statement for him and had him sign it, but didn't say when the statement was signed or what he was referring to. Bruce went on to say that the police followed him constantly after he got out on bond for a DUI, and that he also caught another DUI while he was out on bond. He stated the police threatened him with a max sentence on the charges, and that Katz was around all the time, and that Katz actually drove him to Springfield to have him take a polygraph, and the results were inconclusive. Bruce also stated they told him what to say at trial. Tam, what's the deal with the letters Bruce Rowland wrote from prison? Can you expand on those? Sure. Um, we discovered those letters in a FOIA request, and no one had seen them before. No one knew they existed. We actually did an entire episode about those letters on the Injustice Anywhere podcast, Bruce. <laughs> you probably remember that a few years ago. Um, no one knew anything about them. Roland called me after the show because I had been trying to get in touch with him just to reach out to him. He would never respond. And then after the show, he called me. And the first thing he said was that he didn't write those letters. And I was like, Bruce, have you seen the letters? And he said, no. And I, I told him, you know, they're, they're in handwriting and they're written from prison. And, you know, because he was trying to say that his wife or then wife or, you know, someone else had written them and was just trying to get him in trouble. But then he just came clean and he told me that he had never seen Jamie in prison. I distinctly recall him saying that they were putting him under tremendous pressure, just like the others that we've seen before. They were making sure that he knew that he was eligible for an extended sentence. Um, even Danielle said much the same when I spoke with her. She said they were all over him. And he told her he was doing it for his family, that he just couldn't be locked up for that long. Obviously, this was a common tactic for those detectives. One of the most striking things about Bruce Rowland was that he couldn't even identify Jamie in court. What was that like? I mean, it was ridiculous. What strikes me the most about this is that that Tina Griffin, the assistant state's attorney, was allowed to show Roland three photographs of Jamie. And then she followed up with, you know, now uh, are you indicating that you don't see anybody in the courtroom that looks like those photographs of Jamie Snow, how you knew him back when you knew him? <laughs> and, I, I, you know, I'd love to hear uh, opinions from you know, attorneys out there. It seems like uh, Pitzel should have objected. You know, I don't know. How, how is she allowed to show him three photographs after he was unable to make an in-court ID. And then after all of that, he still couldn't identify him. I remember Jamie saying something like when she was questioning him, she'd walk over to the defense table and kind of gesture towards him. <laughs> you know, like, but, you know, Bruce Rowland should have been like, hey, it's the dude over at the defense table. You know, that's not the lawyer. So. That whole scenario was ridiculous, and I, I, I just don't understand how she was able to just show him three pictures of Jamie when he couldn't ID him in court. 
in the hopes that he could and why that wasn't even objected to. I have no idea why that wasn't challenged. So Jamie's attorney didn't challenge that at all? Not at all. Jamie Snow is sitting right in front of him and he can't identify him at all. He's pointing to an attorney. <laughs> he didn't point to anybody. He was just like, I don't see him in the courtroom. That's amazing. And, and she walked over to the defense table and she was kind of gesturing towards Jamie, you know, the whole time she's questioning him. I mean, I could just see her eyes darting to the left, you know, <laughs> a little head nod. But no, and he still didn't identify him. It was, you know, just a, a crazy scenario. Like, it seems like the judge would have popped in or something. Tam, who is Travis Gaddis and what was his deal? Travis Gaddis was just someone else who was trying to get a deal on the back of this case. In his tape, he even says that blatantly, but Detective Shepard tells him, you know, he'll he'll get him one. So I think that might be why they why he was never brought into it. He was never called to testify. I mean, he, he said, Jamie told me he did it, just like the rest of them. He made up this elaborate story. We only heard, heard his interview tape when we received it from the FOIA lawsuit. So we didn't know this before. Like I said, he didn't testify. But that tape is telling, and we're going to put it up, because it's telling in that because Detective Shepard didn't turn the didn't turn the tape off. He wasn't as careful, seemingly, as Katz and Barkas were. So he just let it run. And he was talking about, you know, them getting a deal. Travis was like, get get his brother out of it and get him out of it and you know, and how how they better get no time for this kind of information. So, you know, it's 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 very, very telling on how the detectives were working this case. And that's what's important about it, because there were others, too, you know, that they were threatening. But either they couldn't use or they just couldn't put their timeline together to make it fit into their theory. It basically shows how they were willing to manipulate witnesses. And give it and give them what they wanted. I mean, that Travis Gaddis tape is 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 incredible, you know, because they are talking about the deal and they're negotiating the deal. It's incredible, which is why course it wasn't used. Who is Karen Strong? How was she involved? Well, Karen Strong was Stretches, which was Martin Cowan's girlfriend at the time of the crime. She would testify that Jamie came over to their house the night of the crime looking for a place to hide, but she wouldn't allow it. I don't even know if she knows at this point if they were wiretapping her. But we're going to cover her testimony in the next episode. But it's strange how these people start coming together. You know, all of these people from the past are coming back up and they're kind of weaving them into their narrative. I will tell you, Stretch and Jamie were best friends growing up. He was one of the only ones that was actually, Jamie could, yes, he's my best, you know, he was my best friend. So they were buddies from the time they were very young. But by the time Jamie was older, like during this time, they weren't hanging out as much. They were kind of going their separate ways. Jamie had kids. So it was the whole, it was the whole nine yards. But a lot of people, and you see it over and over in this case, say that Stretch and Jamie did this. And you can see over and over where they were trying to implicate Stretch in this crime. It varies, you know, Stretch and, and Denny Hendricks and, you know, they bring other people around. Oh, it was him. It was him. It was him. And everybody's got a story. But there's no evidence that Stretch was there. Stretch actually testified for Jamie, was called to testify for Jamie in an attempt to impeach Karen Strong's testimony. But we're going to do a whole episode on Karen Strong. That'll be the next episode. So 
we'll learn a lot more about her. We're going to provide a lot more information about Karen Strong. Yes, we are. Leslie, Roland testified at both Jamie's co-defendant's trial and at Jamie's trial. We heard how he couldn't even identify Jamie in court, but what else went on there? What was he like with the lawyers? Well, the testimony at both trials was identical by the prosecution. It really could have just been copy and pasted. It was all in the same order. And the trials were only five months apart. So it makes sense because in his conversation with Tammy, he said that they prepped in a room moments before the trial and they had told him what to say. And he also had the exact same story in his 1999 recorded interview. And it's never changed since then. What is interesting to me, though, is that there's only one thing that changed slightly when the prosecution was questioning him. At Susan's trial, the prosecutor, Tina Griffin, asked him to specify that he didn't get anything in return for his DUI charge. But in Jamie's trial, she specified that he didn't get promised anything in exchange for any of his testimony. And his sentencing hearing wasn't for 10 more months, so it's possible that was a play on words, and he just hadn't gotten anything yet. And the reason why I find that interesting is because she literally copied the transcript from Susan's trial and read it word for word at Jamie's trial, and then she changed to that one question at the end. So to me, that shows some kind of consciousness that she paid more attention to the edit in that question. And, you know, as we found out later, they did withhold information about him asking for favors in return for his information. And Crow didn't give him anything back in 1994. So that just shows me, as she likes to say so much, consciousness of guilt that she did something during the trial. So with the defense at Susan's trial, Defense attorney Steve Skelton kept it really brief, and he only wanted Roland to admit that Brian Whitmer's house was less than two minutes away from the gas station, which inferred to the jury that it made no sense for him to take a car back to the crime scene to fight over those cigarettes. He also got him to admit that he was in a lot of trouble for that DUI and could go back to prison, and that it had been five years since he supposedly heard the confession and reported it. Well, we know now that that's not really true because he told the police that story in 1994. And like we keep telling you, those letters were withheld in an effort to hide the begging that he did for that deal. And it makes me wonder if he would have ever come back to play with Katz and Barkas in 1999 had he stayed straight and not been arrested again for that DUI. So surprisingly, at Jamie's trial, defense attorney Frank Pitzel did a lot more defense work with Roland than Skelton had done at Susan's. Of course, he opened with this classic move, asking him if he thinks that he's an outstanding, honest, trustworthy citizen, to which Roland agrees to, of course. But then Frank elaborated a little more on Skelton's DUI tactic and flat out accused Roland of still being able to finagle a deal for himself, stating that although he had not been promised anything by the prosecutor, he could still plead to the judge during his sentencing hearing that he's a good citizen who did the right thing with this case and therefore could get favor out of it. And he also makes Roland recite the whole argument over the cigarette situation several times in a move to point out how ridiculous it is that someone would get shot over that. He asked him several times if Jamie ever said he could have just left with the cigarettes, like shoplifted them or stole them instead of killing someone over it which actually makes a lot more sense to even the most deluded of criminals. 
but Roland just kept saying he didn't mention if that was an option. So most importantly, Frank got the Whitmers to testify for Jamie. You might remember they're the people who lived really close to the gas station who other witnesses also threw into the mix before. At the trial, both father and son said they couldn't identify Jamie, with the father saying he can't even recognize him in his younger photos. And they both insist they never met Jamie, and there was absolutely no party at their house that night, as the son Brian was in prison and the father was home with his wife and granddaughter. The father said he remembers the night so well because police came to his house to investigate right after the shooting, and he even let them into his garage, so he recalls for sure there was no party. That was excellent impeachment testimony. It was just as good as the two Frank brought in that we talked about in the last episode, where Jamie's supervising CO said Jamie and Ed Hammond never crossed into each other's yards, and Ed Hammond's relative said Ed admitted to him at court that he never even knew Jamie. So Frank did really impeach both of those snitches, and it could have been like that the whole time if he had tried just as hard with all the other witnesses. Who exactly are the Whitmers, and why were they brought into it? The only thing we can figure out about the Whitmers is that Brian Whitmer used to get in trouble, too. I mean, obviously, he was in jail the night of the crime, so he was in McLean County. He was the only house of a known person that was getting in trouble. You know, he was just in that element. So he was the only house that was close. Someone brought it up early on, and and we think it's part of the narrative that they were feeding people, or it was actually part of the rumor that was going around. You know, a lot of this is based on rumors. They built this story on that. So recall a lot of these guys were in prison together. Moffitt, Hammond, Palumbo. Then you got Roland and Travis Gaddis, you know, have the same narrative. Moffitt, Hammond, Palumbo, same narrative. I think they all just assumed that Jamie knew Brian. But what they didn't know is that Brian and Jamie didn't really know each other, just of each other. And what they did know of each other, they didn't like. So they never hung out. They never went to parties together. That's why Jamie was so adamant about getting him on the witness list. Now, he knew Brian was going to be pissed when he came to court. I think he was in Menard, which is all the way down south. Transports are hard. You're usually shackled for hours. That means feet and hands, and that's painful. You have to get up before the sun comes up. You know, you're driving all this way in a van. He was not happy by the time he got on the stand. And that that's really evident in his testimony. I would encourage everybody to read his testimony because it's, you know, it's just interesting. Some of the things he said, he was a hostile witness and he's like, no, I don't know, Jamie. I don't, I don't, yeah, I know of him and I don't care about him. So, you know, that, that, and like Leslie says, I mean, they were excellent witnesses to have, but they tried to, they tried to put this window of time and they did the same thing to, to Tammy Snow. You know, when she made a snarky remark when they were hammering her about if Jamie was ever out of your sight that day, she said, I don't know, he might've went, you know, walked across the street to get a pack of cigarettes and they just honed in on that. Well, they did the same thing with him. He was like, well, yeah, Brian was in jail that night. We went and saw him for an hour. But it wouldn't have been any longer than an hour. No, there wasn't a... They tried to say there was a party at his house while they were gone on Easter Sunday to go visit the son in jail. How much sense does that make? But they're, you know, they're just, they just 
pick apart like every little tiny thing that they can. But that was so incredible for them to say that. I can't even imagine a jury member believing that scenario. They had to tie Brian into it because they had the other people. Part of their narrative was that he was down at the witness house. And that's what it was. It's interesting how they can build the doubt, though, because there's little, you know, any window of time where something else could have happened. It leaves the jury to think, hey, maybe that did happen or that was possible. So it is a tactic that can work. You know, it's true. As ridiculous as it sounds. I mean, we've seen cases where people literally have 10 minutes to go murder their entire family and go back to a basketball game and a jury buys it. And we had that with uh, David Cam in Indiana, a police officer. He literally had less than 10 minutes to leave a basketball game at a church, go murder his entire family and come back and finish the game. 11 witnesses he had. How do you build a case on that? They did. And he sure did go to prison. So, I mean, that I can understand why these tactics are used, you know, here as well. Well, wait a minute. You weren't with them 24-7? There was seven minutes where you didn't see him? It was so, that is so scary because, you know, first of all, this dude was a cop. And then all the people that he's playing with are like church going, pillars of the community. And they're all like 11 people came up and was just like, he was playing basketball with us. I mean, he was playing basketball while his, you know, while his family was murdered. You know, that just destroys all their credibility with me because they're just so determined to get camp. Right. And that's what these people are doing here, too. That's what the prosecutors are doing. They're just trying to find little windows where they can, you know, show some doubt that, hey, they weren't with them 24 hours a day. They don't know what they were doing. But if, when you look at the whole picture, it's just ridiculous. That it is. Tam, can you elaborate on how Roland and his wife got deals in November that same year? How Roland had his sentence switched to a concurrent sentence, the exact thing he had wanted back in 1994 for the fraud charges? Well, from what Danielle told me, when Roland got his second DUI between trials, that was after Susan's trial, but before he was to testify in Jamie's trial, they came to him and told him, you know, that he was going to have to serve some time. Initially, she said that they were actually going to give Roland probation for that DUI, even though that would have been his third DUI. But because he got another DUI while he was out on bond, they were telling him that he had to get more time. We think that sentence is illegal because he did get a concurrent sentence. I mean, he was he had two DUIs. And then one of them he had while he was out on bond. And the statute clearly states that you cannot have a concurrent sentence on a felony committed while out on bond. Now, there's case law to support that is evidence of a deal. When somebody gets a sentence that sweet, especially in a legal sentence, because it also says you can't have two felony concurrent sentences. So there's case law to support that that, that is evidence of a deal. You said the letters were withheld in an effort to hide his begging for a deal, which is very true. But there was another reason that's really important because they would have discredited, that would have discredited their theory because Jamie and Roland were not in prison together in May and April of that year. So it couldn't have, you know, we know that, like if we would have known that Crow went and talked to him and then he writes back and he's like, I don't, uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't give you enough information and got, you know, seven more years on this bogus charge and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, he didn't give him enough information. He just said all he knew was hearsay. And that's critical because recall, they put them back 
they put them together in November of that year. You know, and it's always been very odd to me because they assigned Jamie a writ, which was a court writ. That means that you go to another prison to stay there before you're going to court. He's not on the circuit, you know, the gang circuit and being moved to all of these different prisons. They just made that up to, to make him look like a bad person. But he was only there for seven days, but he was assigned that court writ from Centralia was where he was. He was assigned on November 21st. The very next day, Bruce Rowland was assigned to be a sanitation worker, which gave him movement. And that has always been very curious to me. Was he supposed to be in that place at that time? Did he... Did they go back to him? Was he placed there? I mean, it would be great to have some communications to see what was going on because it's not far-fetched that they would put a jailhouse informant in a cell with somebody they're trying to get information from. That happens. So that's a, always been odd to me. But all we have right now are the movement records and the dates. Does that make sense to y'all? Yeah, for sure. And the other thing that I picked up on while you were talking was that Crow knew that Roland was full of shit and had already told him he only knew hearsay. So we talked about Crow in episode five and how he took the stand and how the prosecution was like really evasive and didn't ask him any questions. And he didn't even really implicate Jamie in the crime at all. Episode five with Crow was all about the lineup. That's all Crow testified to was the lineup and the photos and Danny Martinez. So obviously, when Crow was on the stand, Crow knew all the information about these other witnesses that he had firsthand knowledge of. And the prosecutors all knew it. And the detectives all knew it. And it was just a game of not mentioning it, not saying it, and not laying the foundation for it. And I'm just wondering... How come Crow was on the stand and Frank Pitzel couldn't pull out a list of all of these supposed confession witnesses and say, did you interview this guy? What did he say? I don't understand that at all. And if it was because he couldn't do it because there wasn't a foundation laid for it by the prosecution, why couldn't he call them as his own witnesses so he could do a direct examination and ask about all these interviews? It's it's insane. And could he have said... Was there anyone, I believe Skelton was the one that brought out about the lineup, you know, was there any others who refused to go, right? Because he's saying there were others. So I wonder if he could have just said, um, was there anyone you interviewed that you didn't believe, you know, or, you know, make (laughs) some type of question like that to, to force him to answer. Jamie swears he's an honest cop. It was a matter of just, just, just compelling him. Yeah. Just answer what I ask you. Just answer what I ask you, you know, and that's, that's, you know, how they, how they played their game. Yeah. And it also, to me, sounds like, you know, Crow was retiring. He was sick and tired. He was wanted to get out of there and he was a little irritable. So he just did what he had to do and he, and he was done and he washed his hands of the whole thing. But I do wonder if he would have lied. I don't think he would have. Do you think he would have? Jamie doesn't think he would have. I I don't know. I don't, I do know that that there are many many police reports where he cleared other people, where he cleared Jamie. 
Mm-hmm. You know, people were trying to say, you know, it was Jamie and it was part of this rumor mill. And he was like cleared. You know, this was cleared a long time ago. He never, and Jamie trusted him for some reason. And that's why he took the polygraph in 94. He only took it after he had a discussion with Crow. Crow was the one that said, I guess, talked him into it, taking a polygraph. He wasn't, I think he, I think Jamie said, Crow said, you're, I don't think you did it after the polygraph, after he passed the polygraph. I don't think you did it, but I think you know who did. And Jamie said, I don't know who did this. And, and also um, the, um, the Bob Ruff podcast, you know, when Tammy Snow was talking, she said that Crow, when they were trying to haul her and Susan in every time they turned around, they, you know, she felt like he was good. He would just ask them questions and let them go. He wasn't harassing. He wasn't confrontational. He would he would just ask them questions and let them go. So he, I think he has a fairly good reputation there. But I do see things throughout this case that are questionable to me. In my opinion, if he didn't stand up when he knew this was going down and he spent nine years, ten years on this case, then he's a bad cop, period. That's how I feel about it. And nobody's going to change my mind about that. He won't talk to us now. You know, he won't write this. And like you said, he knew things were bullshit and he just let it go. So he let an innocent man go to prison for something, he, you know, for something he didn't do. And his family practically be destroyed over it. So I don't think he's a good cop. But that's just my opinion. That's really true. And um, it seems like he has more of a problem with his own integrity being questioned than he does with the value of Jamie's life being taken. Exactly. And his, and his families. I mean, both things can be true. Jamie could have trusted him and viewed him as a, tr- a trustworthy guy. And he can also be a bad cop that just retired and went off into the sunset without fixing the problem. So I don't think Jamie actually misread him when he thinks that, you know, when he thought for all those years that he could trust him. Oh, I, yeah, and I, under, I understand what you're saying, but, you know, I just haven't, I, I, I know that both things can be true. I just don't, I think he's a bad cop. If he threw his hands up and retired after knowing all of this was bullshit, he's wrong. And, you know, he might say, well, I'm retired. It's not my responsibility. But he didn't do anything at the time either. You know? Well, we also have to remember who's at the top of this stinking fish head is Charles Renard. He's the one who trained Tina Griffin. He's the one who arranged for all this to go down. And he's the one who had direct access to the judge. And he's the one who all these other men have also been wrongfully convicted under him. So I hope we do an episode on him. You know what you can do, though? Let me tell you. Juan Rivera had, in Illinois, in Lake County, had three trials. He was accused of killing an 11-year-old girl, rape and killing her. After his second trial, they had DNA. And he went back for a third trial, and they convicted him again. Now, he was a young kid when this happened. Now, the sheriff stood up when the state's attorney wanted his case got overturned by the higher courts because they were like, this is ridiculous. So they changed their narrative, as they often do. They changed their narrative, 
and said, well, somebody else raped her and he killed her. Now, he would never take a deal, which he was offered plenty of deals, but Juan would not take a deal. When they said that they were going to fight that the, the, the case had been kicked back and overturned, the sheriff came out and did a press conference and said, we are not charging. We are not. We do not stand by the state's attorney. We are not going to do this to this man. This is not going to happen. It was not his DNA. And I mean, people lost jobs over it and it wasn't that sheriff. So you can take a stand. What they said was that Holly was an 11-year-old girl who was sleeping with all these different people. That's what the state turned around and said when they changed their narrative. And that's when the sheriff came out. We're not going to do that to her. She was a victim of rape and murder. And this is not going to happen. And heads started rolling. And then there was all kinds of wrongful convictions that were happening in Lake County. My point being, he stood up. It was a sheriff, and yeah, he had some authority, but he doesn't have, you know, the state's attorney has the ultimate authority, but I'm telling you, that state's attorney was forced to retire. He was kicked out. And now they have an integrity unit. So you got to reach that tipping point, and that's what it was. And I think that can happen here, too. It's a great example to show that, you know, police officers and, you know, detectives, anybody can stand up and, and right or wrong. Uh, we don't see it often, though. I have to say, we just don't. That was very unusual. That I agree with that. That was very, very unusual. It's difficult when you have a police officer on the stand. You have to be careful what questions you ask because you can go down the wrong road really fast. So, I mean, as far as what you guys were saying about, you know, he could have been used better in trial. Of course he could because we know Frank sucked. But I do think that you can get on the wrong track really fast with a police officer on the stand and, yeah. you know, really hurt your client. You get him to say one more time, yeah, I'm not sure if he did it, but I know he knows who did it. All of a sudden, now you are got yourself in a whole world of shit. And people believe police officers. They just automatically think that they're telling the truth. Juries believe them. And, I, and I'll tell you what Jamie told me is instead of, you know, how your family sits behind you in court when you're doing a trial, they had a row of police officers dressed in their uniforms behind him, which made him look bad. Yeah, it's powerful. So, I mean, it, the juries are influenced heavily by that. Yeah. You know? Even today, with all the negativity you see around police, when things go to trial, even when in today's environment, things usually end up in favor of the police. Right. Rodney King, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, you sit there and watch somebody be murdered. I mean, we're going back years on that one. I'm even looking at today. You would yes. think with today's media and everything going on today that there'd be a shift, but there's not because there's a, a bunch of anger. And then you go to trial and the police walk every time walk every time so you know just to bring that back people are automatically going to believe him. but you know what that sheriff in lake county used that power for he used his powers for good you know because he knew people would believe him and uh, he did the right thing even if it was just to not disparage the memory of that little girl you i know, think that is kind of what fueled that whole thing is he saw a victim uh, being smeared all to try to keep a murder conviction and a rape conviction and he just wasn't going to stand for it. There was a dynamic there. Mm -hmm. It was unique. Yes. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. In episode 12, 
We showed you how brazen snitch proposals can get, and why the prosecution needed this one kept out of court. Bruce Rowland originally wrote detectives in 1994 asking for help with an early release for a three-year DUI sentence, saying he was willing to do what it takes to get their indictment. When he got even more time, he wrote again, suggesting they throw his girlfriend in jail too, saying he surely wishes he could help more, maybe in the future. He suggested a consecutive sentence on his crimes. Five years later, he contacted cold case detectives when he got another DUI. This time, they played ball. Roland testified that Jamie confessed through a six-inch steel cell door while he mopped the floor, and in return, Roland received an amended sentence just nine months later. But years later, he admitted to a supporter that he was coached on what to say right up until he took the stand, but he has never given an affidavit to Jamie's defense team. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. As part of his story, Roland said Jamie did the crime with his friend Stretch. His story was bolstered when Stretch's old girlfriend Karen showed up to court and told Jamie's jury a tall tale of her own. How did Karen Strong get away with it? That's next time on Snowfiles.